So my family, I want you to rejoice with me over the 129 baptisms we saw last weekend here at the Summit Church. And also we know by faith, many, many more that are happening right now as uh, the invitation was just given by your uh, campus pastors and many more that are being counseled and we just rejoice. Uh, This is what we do as a church. It's what we're all about and there's nothing that makes us happier than that. Luke 14, if you have your Bible this weekend and I hope that you do, if you will open it to Luke 14, we are in Luke 14 in our second week in a series that we are calling Come to the Table in which we are seeing how Jesus used the occasion of a banquet, a meal, a party to teach people about his kingdom. Here is something that many of you will be excited to know that you may not know. Meals were central to the life and the ministry of Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel. One scholar points out that I was looking at that at just about every point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from a meal, he's at a meal, or he is going to a meal. Now, that's a savior worth following in my book, amen? You can literally, this scholar says, eat your way through Luke's gospel. So much so that Jesus' critics label him a drunkard and a glutton. Um, this is an area of Christ-likeness I have already mastered, I am very proud to say. Um, I say, Lord, make me more like you, and then I order that extra side of cheese fries just like I think Jesus would do. What would Jesus do? That might be what he would do. By the way, I should also point out, my conscience compels me, um, that he seems to have gotten in an extraordinary number of steps every day as well, um, always walking everywhere. In fact, when his disciples take a boat across, he chooses just to walk across the water because his step count was low for the day. So master both sides of this equation if you're going to do it. Um, you're like, you are the worst Bible interpreter ever. I, I get it. Um, but anyway, take it for what it's worth. Last week, we saw how Jesus had invited us to the party of his kingdom, and we looked at what keeps people from receiving that invitation. Well, today we're going to see how he uses us to extend that invitation to the banquet to others, just like he extended it to us. Let me remind you of where we left off last week. These were the verses that we closed on. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, this is kind of anti-church growth methodology. He says something very difficult. He says, hey, I'm glad all you guys are interested in me. I'm glad you, you like my teaching, but if any of you really wants to come to me and you don't, you don't hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't really be my disciple. And last weekend, we talked about how tough a statement that was. He means that compared to our loyalty and our commitment to Jesus, every other relationship in our lives, every other one, uh, even our most intimate relationships like our, our, our family or our friends or our dreams for our life, all of those relationships, even though they're great, they should all look like hate in comparison to how committed we are to Jesus. I ask you to consider this. Can you honestly say, that compared to your commitment to Jesus, that your commitment to your family, to your friends, to your desires for your life, that compared to how dedicated you are to Jesus, that your dedication to those things looks like hate. Well, today Jesus is gonna give us a picture of what this looks like in action. Now, let me give you a warning here. Today is going to be difficult for, for some of you, for many of us, because it's gonna challenge you and I at some pretty fundamental levels. It's going to challenge you to rethink, for some of you, your whole approach toward life. Yet Jesus' message today also has, I believe, the power to set you free onto a journey which is going to bring so much more joy and so much more purpose into your life than what you're currently experiencing. I mean, let me just ask you to consider this. Do you ever wonder sometimes, you ever just find yourself wondering if anything about your life actually matters? As in, are you going to have any kind of lasting significance beyond your death or does it have any eternal significance? 
Or let me ask, are you tired of feeling like you just get up every day and you go to work and you try to make ends meet and you, uh, you, you watch a little TV and try to distract yourself with some hobbies and then look forward to vacation next year and then just rinse and repeat and go through that process year by year. You see, God created you, all of you. He created all of us to crave eternal significance. That's not some kind of pipe dream that belongs to middle schoolers, dreary-eyed middle schoolers. That is something God put in the heart of every human being. He put eternity in our hearts. We long to long for something. And that is a, a desire he put there. And what Jesus is gonna show you today is how you can have that kind of eternal significance. And here's the thing, it's going to surprise you what he says. Living for eternal significance, living in a way that has eternal significance may not look like you expect. And what Jesus is teach, teaches here might surprise you because it's a lot less glamorous and a lot more rewarding than you might anticipate. Luke 14, verse 12, again, the context. Jesus was at a rich dude's party. And at some point, Jesus looks around and he notices that the guy throwing the party has only invited other rich, popular people to be at the party with him. Now, of course, Jesus was not himself rich, but he was pretty well known. And he could, of course, do some killer party tricks. Um, so he usually got invited. You know, hey, Jesus, we're out of checks mix. Bam, he multiplies it. So there's 12 baskets left over of checks mix. So he always got invited to these parties. Verse 12, but he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or you give a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... You should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, I have to imagine this was a tad bit awkward. I mean, he looks around and he says, hey, when you have a party, don't invite these people right here. The only reason you're inviting these people is because you hope that, that maybe they'll invite you back to their parties. Instead, you should invite people who, who really have nothing that you're interested in, who can't invite you to their parties because they don't really even own houses. Y'all, what Jesus was telling them here would have been in those days, economic suicide. Because parties in those days were the places that business took place. It's where really important relationships were formed. It's where networking happened. It's where deals were done. So inviting rich, influential people into your party was a, was a pretty shrewd economic decision because then they would feel obligated to invite you back to theirs where you could get to know all of their rich friends and their network and you could do business with, with, with their network. So for you to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind meant that you were choosing to spend your resources on those who could not pay you back and couldn't really add any financial benefit into your life. Now, when you think about it, things have not changed that much in business today, of course, right? Things haven't changed that much. In fact, this is a, think of it as a philosophy of life that many people go through life with, of just like, I'm going to invest my life in those things that can in return add value to my life. But if you remember what we saw last week, Jesus explained that when he invited people to his party, remember this? He didn't just invite people who could add value to his life. No, Jesus chose when he compelled people to come to his kingdom, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the, the street people, the highway people, the hedge people, in a word, us, he invited us. And thank God that he did that because if he hadn't done that, then we would be excluded from his eternal party. And that should fundamentally reorient, he says, how you approach the party of your life. So there are two questions I want us to consider from this parable. One is metaphorical and one is very literal. Here's the metaphorical one. If your life, okay, metaphor, if your life were depicted as a party, who would be the invited guest to your party? Imagine that we chose to depict your whole life 
We chose to depict it in terms of a party, a metaphor of a party. If so, who would you be throwing that party for? Is your life a series of calculated relationships and decisions that you think will one day return value to your life? Is, you, is it a party, in other words, that you are throwing for you? Or is your party something you are throwing for those who cannot necessarily pay you back? You see, following Jesus means, following Jesus means that you look at your life, your talents, your resources, as resources given to you to bless people who can't necessarily pay you back, at least in this life. Let me apply this for a few minutes to how you think about your career. Later in the message, I'll talk about it more in terms of your personal life, but for now, let's just think in terms of your career. For whose benefit do you primarily see your talents and your career? If we thought of your career like a big party that you were throwing, who is that party really being thrown for? Let me give you four questions you can ask about your job to help you get at this. Um, I'll have as A, B, C, D. A, do you look at your job primarily as a way of serving others or as a way of enriching yourself? Right? There's, this is something I think we haven't taught enough about in the church, but God gave us our talents and our careers primarily as a way to serve and bless others. There's nothing wrong with getting financial benefit from it, but at its core, our talents and our careers are instruments by which God blesses others. One of the primary ways that God blesses his creation and cares for his creation is through the skills that he gives to people. We've explained that God created the world in an unformed fashion. He created it, said it was good, but then he gave Adam and Eve and all humanity since then skills to develop the earth. Martin Luther, the, 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 the reformer, German reformer in the 16th century, explained it like this. When we pray the Lord's prayer, we ask God to give us our daily bread, right? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. How does God usually do this? He does it by usually by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain. He does it by means of the baker who made the flour into bread and the person who prepared our meal. We might add to that in our day, the truck drivers who hauled the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehouse workers, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, the lady at the checkout counter also playing their part are bankers, development investors, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, government officials, and any other active player in our nation's economic system. Every single one of those people was instrumental in enabling you to eat your morning everything bagel, right? Now, God could have chosen to answer that prayer directly, miraculously, like he did the manna. He could just wake up in the morning and bam, there it is. He leaves it on the ground the way that God provided manna for the children of Israel. But typically, typically, right, God chooses to provide us our morning bagel through the skills and careers of other human beings who, Gene V says, in their different capacities and according to their different talents, serve each other. The point is, whatever your job is, you ought to see it as a gifting by God to meet the needs of others. And we should see our jobs as gifts by God given to us to bless others. It's how God cares for his creation. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Well, your job might be the most important out of all of them. Raising godly kids to serve the world is the most important job I would say that I could think of in the world. I know a pastor's wife who graduated from a, a top college and she said she got sick of hearing, you know, her friends ask her, uh, you know, what are you doing now? Because she went to such a good school. And, and uh, when she would say, well, I'm a you know, stay-at-home mom, I'm raising you know, our kids, uh, the disappointment that always got this vibe of like disapproval that came back her way. So finally she said, I just learned to start saying when they asked me, you know, what do you do now? She says, quote, I'm socializing four homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be transfer instruments of transformation for the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia for that what God willed from the beginning of creation. What do you do, right? 
Right, the point is, whatever task God has assigned you to do, you should see it as a gifting by God to serve others. Now, again, that doesn't mean you all don't also make a profit from it. Just that first and foremost, it's a, an instrument that God uses to bless others. The architect helps provide beautiful, safe buildings for people to live in. The lawyer helps craft and implement laws that make our society fairer and more and more equitable. The pharmacist deals drugs that help us avoid sickness. The actor provides entertainment that adds joy and entertainment to our lives. Or in the case of Nicolas Cage, gives us a hero to model our lives after. The barista at Starbucks provides caffeine hits that makes us feel like life is worth living, right? Amen, amen, amen. This is what it means, by the way, to think, to, to, to be a Christian in business. Some people have the worst ideas about what it means to be a Christian in business. I've told you it thinks they mean you got to go, you know, open up a hair salon called His Clips or a cut above or a coffee shop called He Brews. And if that's you, that's fine. And if that's the name of your thing, don't send me an angry email. But that's not all that it means to be a Christian in business. What it means to be a Christian in business is not that you have Christian labels attached everywhere as much as it is that you see your career, whatever it is, your skill, your assignment as given to you by God primarily as a way of serving and caring for others. That's the first question you should ask. The second question you ought to ask based on Jesus's teaching here is, letter B, are there ways your job or skill set specifically can benefit the poor? You ought to ask if there are ways that your job can benefit those who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Listen, I want to be really careful here because I don't want to imply that all good business that's done that honors God is nonprofit or charity work. Listen to me, good for-profit businesses are absolutely critical to eliminating poverty long-term. But for some of you, there are aspects of your career that you can use to bless others that go beyond profit. It can, of course, be the lawyer who dedicates a certain amount of their, of their cases to be pro bono or the dentist who engages in free community clinics. But I also know an entrepreneur in our church who has dedicated his services, his expertise, now that he is in more of his, uh, you know, I don't look like the, the chapter where he's getting ready for retirement, he's dedicated his business to helping other small businesses get off the ground in low-income areas. Even though that may not necessarily be the most financially profitable for him, he thinks it's something that he can do to, to bless those who may not be able to bless him back. I know local business owners in our church who, for example, work with our prison ministry to help provide jobs for some of our prison brothers and sisters when they're released. They're doing it. They're leveraging part of their career to be able to, to minister to those Jesus is talking about. Some of you have skills that can benefit the poor overseas. Listen, in pioneer missions areas, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, there's almost an endless need for English teachers and builders, construction, disaster relief. Honestly, any job that makes a viable wage in the U.S. is something that can benefit the poor somewhere. The need for good lawyers, doctors, accountants in developing countries is massive. And broad experience, by the way, in business leadership might be the most needed thing over there. I'd put it this way. If it's even crossing your mind right, that you can climb the ladder in your workplace, then you already have skills that could transform entire communities in the poorer parts of the world. Y'all listen, according to the Theology of Work Project, 1.4 billion people in our world live in abject poverty and another 1.1 live, 1 million live in ba on basic subsistence. The Center for Disease Control says that every week, 100,000 kids in our world die of starvation or preventable hunger-related diseases. Now, Jesus's parable has to mean something in light of that. Undoubtedly, I've heard it said, there has to be a connection between empty stomachs on one side of the Atlantic 
and empty lives on the other. God gave those things to you for a purpose and he's telling you what he wants you to use them for. The skills and the resources to end most poverty, I believe, are already in the church. So you gotta ask that question, are there ways? Are there ways that you might leverage that to minister to those people? Here's a third question, let her see, how can you leverage your job for the Great Commission? I've explained at this church many times that one of the myths, one of the destructive myths we believe is that the call to leverage your talents, your life for the Great Commission is this mystical moment that takes place in your life where everything goes blurry and a cloud descends from heaven and it's a sacred experience that only a select few varsity Christians ever go through. Hey, often, you know, I explain it as the, what I call the Cheerios method of discerning the will of God. You're just waiting one day as you're eating your Cheerios in the morning for it magically to spell out like, go to Afghanistan. And you're like, oh, I get it. That's what God wants me to do. I've told you, I've stared at my Cheerios for years. They've never spelled anything out to me. All, only, all it ever spells out is ooh, over and over and over again. Never spells anything. That's just not how God calls people into ministry. The call of, listen, the call to leverage your life for the spread of the gospel was included in the call to follow Jesus. Matthew 4, 19, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you a fisher of men. Which means when you accepted the call to follow Jesus, you accepted the call to use your life to spread the gospel. And that's gotta mean something in light of this parable. We always say around here, the question is no longer if you are called. The question now is only where and how you are called. Now listen, we live in a world where there are still more than 6,400 unreached people groups. That is a group of 10,000 people or more who speak a language that have no viable gospel witness. They said if you lined up all the people in those people groups into a single file line, they would circle the earth, right? just had them arm to arm. They would circle the earth 25 times. Can you imagine standing in front of a line of people as long as the earth, 25 people wide, just treading hopelessly toward destruction? Surely that requires something from those of us who know Jesus. Over the years, I, I've compared it, you know, before to, uh, you know, I'm like if you're walking through downtown and you, uh, you find yourself beside a railroad tracks and there's a, a small child on the railroad tracks who's hurt and they can't move. They're still alive, but they can't move. And you notice a train is coming, right? You don't stop and get down on your knees and say, Lord, I just, what's your will in this moment? Would you burden my heart with what you want me to do? God, would you, no, you, you like, no idiot. Pick the kid up. You know what God's will is in that moment. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We sit around talking about finding God's will for our lives. It's not lost. God intends to use you to bring other people to Jesus. You don't need a call, a special mystical call. You have the call. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You don't need a voice, we say, because you've got a verse. And I would say it seems to me that the burden of proof lies upon us who stay in a world where there is, in a society where there is so much, when there are places where there is so little. Some of you might be able to expand your company or take your skill to places in the world with no gospel witness. Historically, historically, I've, I've explained to you before that this is the way the gospel always travels best in our world. Uh, Stephen Neal uh, is a church historian wrote a classic book called The History of Christian Missions in which he traces the, the spread of the gospel in the early church. And he says, what is remarkable, most remarkable about the first century of growth in the Christian church is its anonymity. Nobody really knows who's spreading the gospel. He said, by the end of the first century, you had three major church planting centers, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. 
He said, what is remarkable is we have no idea who planted the churches in Antioch, Alexandria, or Rome. No idea. He said, the story of the founding of the church in Antioch takes place in Acts 11. And all it says is some brothers who were filled with the spirit showed up in Antioch. And when they were there, they planted a church. Some brothers is Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. That's his way of saying a bunch of dudes who aren't even important enough for me to tell you their names because you're never gonna see him again in scripture anyway. Just some guys that showed up and they planted a church. And one day that church was sent out the apostle Paul. Acts 28, if you remember when we studied through Acts a couple of years ago, I showed you that, that Paul for the last half of the book of Acts is dead set on planting the church in Rome. That's what he, he's like, man, Rome is like the capital of the world. I'm gonna plant a church there. I'm gonna take Christ where he's never been named. And <laughs> man, what a journey it is, right? Shipwrecks and beatings and prison and having uh, you know, serpents dangle off of his arm. And finally by Acts 28, he drags his tired old body into Rome, just you know, beaten up. And there it says, Acts 28, 14, he is greeted by some brothers. Same phrase, same group of unnamed guys. We're like, Paul, man, so glad for you to come and visit us. We planted a church here. We'd love for you to come maybe teach a sermon at it. Maybe write us a book. That would be awesome. We would love to have a book of Romans, right? It's, it's, it's all anonymous. It's all, one day that church in Rome would have Peter as its leader, but Peter didn't found it. The gospel today spreads in the world through, not through apostolic effort. Think apostle, somebody like me, somebody who works in the church. The gospel spreads mainly through ordinary people who just say, God, show me how to use my career for the Great Commission. I think here of my own father. I've, I think I've told you his story before. My dad, when he retired, um, the day that he retired, literally that afternoon, his company rehired him to, for more money to be a consultant on a project that was, they were doing over in what we call the 1040 window, which is the least evangelized place in the world, um, places like China, India, Afghanistan, those places. They hired him to oversee the construction of a plant, the textile plant over there, um, because they wanted to build one there. And that, so he goes over for 18 months with my mom and they live there, right? While he's there, he rubs shoulders with Asian businessmen that we have never been able to get close to on any of our mission trips, doing you know, English corners and giving out water bottles. He's able to lead a couple of those businessmen to Christ. By the way, y'all, total cost to the church here, zero. we made money in the deal because he kept tithing while he was over there, right? It, it, what it shows you is that, that, that God has already opened the door for so many of us to be there. Um, I, I, I was reading this article in a missions journal that explained that um, if you count up all the missionaries over in, uh, over in the 1040 window, between the 10th and 40th parallel where most of the unreached peoples live, um, the total number of uh, missionaries from every evangelical denomination is 40,000. Now that's awesome, praise God, we need 10 times that many. If you add up the number of Americans working in secular employment in the 1040 window, 2 million. Now, if demographic trends hold, which I assume they would, that means what, 36% of them identify as born again? Let's just write off two thirds of them is not really serious about their faith, okay? So let's not even count them. And let's just take a, what, a third of that number. That means that there are 200,000 practicing Christians, practicing Christians who believe the gospel right now in the 1040 window, somebody else paying for it. What if they saw their primary purpose in being there as being there to make, be disciple making disciples? That would go from 40,000 missionaries to 240,000 without costing the church another dime. I want you to understand God placed in some of your hands a key. And that key, he intends to unlock the nations. And you've got to ask the question, how can my job be? I read this, no, no, I'm sorry to reference so many articles, but Forbes magazine had an article that said that 75% of college graduates today, 75% believe that their career will take them overseas at some point. 
Now I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, that ain't true. Okay, that's like, I read another stat that said 87.2% of all college graduates in America think they're above average at math. I'm like, some things are kind of self-defeating, okay? So that's not true. That's not true. But it shows you that, that many of you have careers that very well could lead you to do. That's why we say, give us your first two years and let us put you on one of these church plans. That's why we tell retirees, hey, why not give your first two years after retirement? to go in and serve on one of our church planning teams because this is what God gave it to you for. Which leads to question four. Do you, use, do you see the primary use for the money that you make from your job? What do you see it as? The money you get from your job is certainly how you take care of and bless your family. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of your labor. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But one of the reasons God prospered you you understand this? One of the reasons that he prospered you is for the purpose of blessing others. For many of you, the whole party you're throwing with the money you make from your job is for you. I mean, sure, you throw some change and some leftovers God's direction, but you're not giving the first and the best to God. You're not using the money God gave you for the purposes God gave it to you for primarily. God did not enable you to make the money you make just so you could drive the nicest cars or live in the nicest houses or have life, lives that are filled with the nicest amenities. He gave you, he prospered you so that you could leverage that prosperity for the poor and the needy. And we will have to answer to God for that, Jesus says, based on this parable. One of my favorite biblical heroes has always been a guy named William Tyndale. He's the first guy, first translator of the Bible into English. Um, I have a couple um, in, in my backstage area. I have a copy of a Bible from the 1400s, or, or it's a page from it, that they called the Chain Bible because it was in Latin and they chained it to the pulpit in English speaking pulpit so that nobody could take it home. It'd be the worst thing in the world for people to get a hold of the Bible, they thought. William Tyndale changed that, he translated it into English, he paid for it with his life. He would end up being burned at the stake and it's an incredible story, I was always so inspired by it. I learned um, not too long ago an aspect of the story that I'd never heard. Um, uh, and uh, it was the story of another guy named William Monmouth, who was a partner with Tyndale that I'd never heard of. He was not in ministry, he wasn't a trained preacher, he was a businessman who William Tyndale led to Christ and Monmouth got this vision. He owned this big fleet of merchant ships. So he used the wealth from his merchant ship trading to fund Tyndale's translation project and printing project. And then he used his network of all these ships going all throughout the English empire to carry the gospel to all these different places. So that when the King of England decided he was gonna kill Tyndale and burn all his translations, there were way too many scattered all throughout the world that they could never get them back and in part led to the King James Bible that we have. And so I have a copy of one of the Bibles that Tyndale translated and it just reminds me two things. One, how precious the word of God is. And number two, it reminds me that, that God takes different people in his church to prosper the kingdom. And some of you, that's why God gave you what he gave you. And it's time for you to stop or start asking that question. Why did God give me this skill? All right, so that, that, that's all question number one. If your life were depicted as a party, who would be the invited guests? I promised you a second question from Jesus' teaching, and here it is. All right, this one's much more literal. Number two, are you including outsiders at your dinner table? That literally is what he's saying, right? Let's just take Jesus' teaching at face value. Around your actual table, your meals, your parties, are you including the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled? I read a book recently that I want to commend to all of you. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. 
It is written by um, a, a lady who actually lives locally here. She lives in Durham. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Um, uh, we have copies that are available at all of our campuses today. We'd love for you to pick one up. You can purchase it out in the, uh, the lobby, the Next Steps area. Um, if not, you can get it, you know, if we run out and get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. But um, she lives, she has one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. Uh, she, was a, an, she was a professor at Syracuse University of English literature and queer theory. She was a committed lesbian in a committed lesbian relationship. And she was what you think about when you think culture warrior on the left side, that's who she was. She just, was, in fact, she wrote a seminal article on queer theory that is still referenced today um, by the, the, the homosexual movement as being instrumental in, in understanding it. So she was very involved in that. Um, well, a group named Promise Keepers was coming to her part of New York and she just thought it represented the worst possible people, uh, you know, these uh, Christians who believe the Bible. So she wrote this, I mean, just scathing letter to the editor um, in the local newspaper. And she said, I got so much reaction from that. She said, uh, I got all these letters. And she said, I actually had two piles on my desk for a couple of weeks after that, one called hate, one called love. And people, some people would write me and they would just, oh, you, you're such a, you're awesome. And thank you for saying all this. And I put it in the love pile. And then people would write me and, and they would just, you know, just break me over the coals and tell me I was a disgusting human being. I put that in the hate pile. She said, I got this one letter I didn't know what to do with. It was from a guy named Kent Smith who was a local pastor of this little tiny church. And she said, it was obvious he disagreed with me, but he spoke with such kindness and tenderness to me in this letter. And he invited me to dinner at his house with he and his wife. She goes, I stared at that letter for, it was probably five or six minutes and I couldn't figure out which pile to put it in. She said, well, eventually I just put it in the drawer. And she said, I'd pull it out every you know, two or three days and I'd look at it and say, which pile does this belong to? She said, so I told one of my friends about it and they said, well, why don't you go to his house, have dinner with he and his wife and you can just sort of do some study on them. Like these crazy you know, Bible believing Christians, you can figure out and you can write a paper on them later. So she says, I did that. And I started to go to dinner at his house on Sunday night. She said, I went almost every Sunday night for two years to dinner at his house. She said, I just, in that two years, became overwhelmed with his kindness and his tenderness and their generosity toward me. Um, she said, and I'll make a long story really short here. Um, she said, um, through their love, eventually, I came to faith in Christ. She said, I, I left the lesbian community. I, I, I came to faith in Christ and surrendered to him. Uh, she said, I ended up getting fired from Syracuse. Now she's married to a pastor here in Durham named Kent Butterfield. Uh, they are, are part of a church um, up in Durham and she's now the mother of four children, two of which are, uh, are, are foster adoptions. Um, and so she writes this book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key because she said it was through hospitality that I was brought to faith in Christ. And she makes the case that in this climate that we're in, regardless of who we're dealing with, that our houses are the most important tools that God has given us for the spread of the gospel. She points out it's the primary way scripture tells us to reach out to people. It's how Jesus primarily reached out to people. He constantly is eating with people. The gospel, she says, is supposed to come with a house key. When you're sharing the gospel, you give somebody a house key and say, I want you to be a part of, 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 of my life. Here's what she says in the book. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality, that's what she calls it, see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. My prayer is that this book, Gospel Comes with a House Key, will help you let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, your front yard, your community gymnasium, your garden or whatever for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. In the book, she gives what she calls a typical overview of a week in the, uh, an overview of a typical week in the Butterfield household. Um, Sunday, she says, that's for worship and fellowship. 
That also includes a fellowship meal for our church family at our house that ranges usually from 10 to 30 people on Sunday nights. On Mondays, she said, I usually deliver a meal to a neighbor in need. Uh, she told me, I've actually, um, uh, she actually had me over to um, her house, me and Veronica, my, my wife, um, I, maybe she thinks I'm a neighbor in need, but it was, it was an awesome meal. And uh, she said, um, uh, she said, yeah, she says, I'm not on any social media, literally I'm not on any, except for one thing, the next door app. She said, I'm the next door queen, I'm gonna tell you. She says, every single time somebody posts on the next door app what they need, she says, I'm the first one there. I, just, I get there, whether it's their cat sick or whether it's they need their dog walked or they need somebody to water their plants or they need to go to the hospital. So Monday is delivering a meal to a neighbor in need. Tuesday, she says, is dinner and formal conversation and prayer at our house with neighbors and church friends. We just do a little prayer for the neighborhood. Um, Wednesday is a prayer meeting at church. She said, after that, when I do errands, like dropping off a, um, a gift to a, one of our neighbors who's in jail now. Thursday, she said, we prayer walk in the evening with our neighbors. We have a set time where we just take a prayer walk throughout the neighborhood. And we ask neighbors to join us. She said, they're getting the hang of it because now they come out of their houses and they stand on their driveways so that when we walk by, they can give us prayer requests. Um, she said, Friday, that's a regular Costco run with an offer to pick up items for neighbors, an optional meal that I'll have that evening and fellowship with neighbors if it works out. Saturday, she said, that's another optional meal and prayer with church members and our neighbors. And um, that's the typical week. Now, I shared this with our church staff and I told them two things strike me about that schedule. Number one, it sounds kind of exhausting. To be totally honest with you, that is not my family schedule right now. But second, most of it, here's what struck me. Most of it are things that any of us can do, right? You don't have to have a great home or a lot of money to be really gifted at doing this. You just need to believe that God wants you to include strangers and outsiders in your rhythms of life right? That's what he wants you to do. She thinks that the bulk of gospel ministry, she says, is accomplished just by being a good neighbor. She said, that's, well, we're thinking, what's this, this key I need for evangelism? It's just your house. It's being a good neighbor. Throughout the book, she identifies what she calls obstacles that American Christians um, have to this. I'll give you a handful of them. And this is kind of my synopsis, not exactly her words, but she says, first one is the wrong definition of hospitality. She said, particularly in Southern culture, we think hospitality means inviting over church friends and cooking a meal for them. Biblically speaking, however, listen, hospitality in the Bible means welcoming in the stranger. The word hospitality in Greek literally means love of the stranger. Welcoming insiders around your table, right? To bring in other church friends, Christian friends, and the Bible is called fellowship. And that's also important, but it's different from hospitality. Nothing wrong with enjoying fellowship, but the point is don't limit that guest list to family, friends, relatives, and rich neighbors. Question is, where's the single mom around your table? Where's the orphan? Where's the foster kid? Where's the prisoner? Where is the abused? This is central to Christian ministry. In fact, one of the requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is that they are devoted to hospitality, which means their lives are open to people that are outside of the Christian faith. You see, but don't just include those you enjoy or benefit your life or those who can repay you. Here's the second thing she identifies, fear. Many of us, she said, are afraid of what will happen if we open up our homes. What are we going to expose our kids to? We like to think of our homes as our safe castles, as our territory. She said, yeah, but first of all, that's not how Jesus lived and you want to be his follower, then you, you got to change that. She said, the real danger is not what some stranger may introduce in your family. The real danger is the sin that'll grow in you and your kids' hearts when they live only sheltered, self-centered lives. She says, it's not stranger danger that's really dangerous, it's selfishness and isolation from the stranger that really destroys. 
There was another author I was reading who was talking about how fear kept his family from fostering as an example. And he said, because he was like, well, what happens if, I, what, what'll happen to my kids if I do that? Eventually he said, I just sensed God telling me to trust him and he would take care of it. So I did it. He said, now having fostered now for many years, he, he said, there's three benefits from fostering. Number one, you have a real ministry in the life of a child who many times has never really experienced constant steady love. Number two, you end up having a ministry with a lot of the parents who had to give up their kids for um, fostering because they're, he says, usually they're like a single mom is the highest in that category. And we've had real ministry in their lives. This is the interesting one. Number three, he said, but third, providing care for these children is the single best things we've ever done for our own kids. We've learned how God uses hospitality to shape and form us. That is a fascinating aspect of kingdom living. As you bestow a blessing for the benefit of others, you realize that you too are a recipient of God's grace. A real que- he, he says, the real question is not how dangerous is that stranger? The real question is how dangerous will I become if I'm not more open? Right, I mean, one of our pastors and his wife got involved um, in inviting refugees into their home. They live in a neighborhood where they are. And they said, yeah, it was scary at first. He said, in fact, uh, the wife told me, she said, um, she said, all of a sudden I had this guy, this Pakistani neighbor show up at my, at my door. And he says, uh, in very broken English, can I have pressure cooker? And she's like, pressure cooker? He said, yeah, pressure cooker, like you make bomb with. And she was like, uh, and she says, no, I don't want to make bomb. I want to make rice, but, but, but pressure cooker, like one you make bomb with. And she's like, sure, here's your pressure cooker. She says, we've had to adjust to all kinds of things. She said, but the benefit on my children and my family as we've seen ourselves poured out for the love of Christ is something I would not change. Do you understand? This is what it means to follow Jesus. What did you think growing in Christ's likeness meant? What do you think sanctification really is? You think it means getting busy in church and memorizing verses, cleaning up yourself morally and stop using swear words? Switching your, your radio to K-Love and not watching really bad movies. Is that what you think Christian growth is? God did not save you to sanitize you and put you on the shelf. He saved you to send you into service. We could say it, he converted you not to quarantine you. He converted you to commission you. And the essence of following Jesus is pouring yourself out for others like he poured himself out for you. And your meal times, your table is a great way to do that. Here's letter C, viewing hospitality as performance rather than calling. This is a big one for Southern culture. Here's what Rosaria says. We sometimes forget that the Christian life is a calling, not a performance. Hospitality is necessary whether you have cat hair on the couch or not. People will die of chronic loneliness sooner than they will die of cat hair in the soup. Well, first, if you have a cat, get rid of the thing, okay? That's an easy fix right there. That's your problem, right? It's, it's crystal clear in the Bible. But if you are hard of heart and you just will not do that, do not let pride over how clean or how not clean your house is keep you from using it for the kingdom because the issue is not what people think about your housekeeping skills. The issue is that they are broken and lonely and need a touch from God. The mission is too important to make hospitality primarily about what others think about your housekeeping skills. She explains, she says, most of my hospitality is pretty mundane. I just keep a constant pot of coffee going and soup always on the stove. She says, because I'm not trying to perform them or impress them. I'm just trying to be open to them. I mean, how absurd would it be for you to go to a hospital and need desperate life-saving stuff and to comment on, you know, I'm not going to this hospital because the plants need watering in the, in the lobby. Yeah, they should water their plants, but you know what? If you go to a hospital, it's because you need something life-saving and that's what Jesus says about our homes. Yeah, take care of your house, clean your house, but most importantly, use it. Don't let your pride over what people think about you keep you from opening up, your, even in its mess. By the way, other people need to see the mess of your life. Because when they come into some polished, airbrushed, perfect structure, they don't relate to that. 
They're like, well, I, you know, this is what, this is who Jesus loves. It, when they see you in your mess and all your dysfunction, that's when you're like, hey, yeah, Jesus loves me this way and he's working on me and he can probably get involved in your mess too. Of course, she says, this is the last one, letter D. She says, this is the big problem, no margin. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day. Time where regular routines, right, where it can be disrupted but not destroyed. The margin stays open for the Lord to fill to take an older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make room for a family displaced by a flood or a worldwide refugee crisis. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. You see, without margin, you're incapable of investing in your neighbors in the spontaneous way that relationships require. Without margin, you just won't have space to meet and serve them and meet their needs. Margin gives you the ability we have said to be interruptible for God's purposes. She says, this is how we'll reach our society today. Yo, we live in a post-Christian world. She says that is sick and tired of hearing from Christians. What they need now is to feel the love of Christians. She said, they can still argue with our beliefs. And she's a very committed Christian, believes what this church believes, believes what the Bible says. She says, they will argue with our beliefs, but who can argue with us just loving them through genuine mercy-driven hospitality? She says, in our day, in our day, for words to be persuasive, our words, listen to this, cannot be stronger than our relationships. You understand that? Our words cannot be stronger than our relationships. Our words, no matter how beautiful, will not persuade if they're not backed up by this kind of love and hospitality. My words from up here can be beautiful and they will not compel people to come to Christ without relationships in your lives with them that will back it up and make it beautiful. Right? It's not rallies. It's not big events. It's not even the stuff we do on sometimes when we go to deep. And those are all awesome. But it, in our day, it is these relationships that create that environment that bring people to faith in Christ. Social media posts are not bringing people to Christ. You understand that? Are we all really clear on that? Your angry Facebook rants on whatever you're angry. No, it ain't changing nobody's mind about anything. Because in our day, it's not words that change people's minds. It's relationships. I love this. Stop thinking of witnessing to your neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives. She says, you got to know them and love them and get up close. You know, several of the baptisms we saw last weekend, this was awesome. Several of the baptisms. And when you heard them tell the story, if you were listening, it was because somebody opened their life up and said, this person just got to know me. So two questions, two questions we've got from this parable. Number one, if your life were depicted as a party, who would the invited guest be? And number two, are you including outsiders at your dinner table? You said, well, JD, what, what do I do with all this? Um, if you're thinking like, how do I explore my career? How do I engage some of the stuff you're talking about? If you go to my blog this week, jdgreer.com, there's a post that'll have all the links that you'll need to explore these things. If you wanna like, well, what's it like to get involved in refugee ministry and involved in some of these things? If you'll go to my blog, I'll link you to it, but it's our Serve RDU site. We have Welcome RDU, which welcomes in international students and refugees. Um, we have all kinds of things that are involved uh, there. We have a neighboring training, in fact, on October 20th at the Blue Ridge campus. That'll be a place for you to go in and ask, how can I love my neighbors well? And how, what are some ideas to get this going? Right, here's the last thing I wanna challenge you to, and I'm gonna come back to this, but I just wanna throw this out there. I wanna challenge every single one of you to have one person who is outside of the faith that you are praying about how to reach for Christ. We, we call it, who's your one? Who is, what if every person at the Summit Church had one person that they were praying for every day to build a relationship to and bring to faith in Christ, you were intentional with them about how you're including them in your life, what you're bringing them to at the Summit Church here, right? And 
you are committing to, attempting to have them or somebody who's not of the faith in your home at least once a month. That is a very practical thing I'd love to challenge you to do. Commit to one time a month having that person that you're one person or somebody that is not a believer in your home around your table. If we committed to that, can you imagine the change that it would make not just in our church, but in this community? Well, let me end all this just by showing you a quick story of why this is worth it and how it looks. This is actually uh, from a guy who serves as a security guard for me on the weekend, or at least he did, you'll, you'll, you'll hear him say that. And you're like, you need a security guard? Yeah, some of these sermons are really bad and people just, you know, they throw things at me at the end. So anyway, but uh, this is his story and I thought it's fantastic and I thought it shows you what we're talking about. So um, take a, uh, a look at the screen. Hey, Summit Church family, it's J.R. Sharp here. I first off want to thank you guys so much for all that you've done in my life and all that you've done in my family's life. You guys have allowed us to be a more Christ-centered family and really taught us what it means to love and know Christ. To tell you a little bit about our story, about six years ago here in Durham, I was working out at one of the local gyms and this gentleman approached me and asked if he could work out with me. Uh, I thought it was kind of strange because I was kind of new to the area and I was new to this gym and I was working out to have a guy approach me and want to work out. I said, sure, man, come on in and we worked out together, and that natural gym relationship turned into a friendship uh, with this gentleman who the Summit Church knows as Hank Murphy, one of our worship leaders here. Uh, Hank was just really intentional with me about sharing the gospel and just being my friend. Uh, we would hang out together. We'd watch football. We'd watch basketball. We'd go to the, pl the pool, and we'd just hang out. We would grill. Uh, that relationship was amazing to me, uh, and through that relationship, uh, Hank invited me to the Summit Church, and um, which was important to me because I wasn't a follower of Christ and I didn't know anything and uh, I was just kind of out there stranded looking for hope, looking for faith and looking for the gospel. So Hank invited me to the Summit Church and I was able to hear Pastor J.D. preach uh, and I was so excited my first time there that I went home and I ran and told my wife, I said, hey, the Summit Church is amazing. You got to come. You got to see what's going on. You got to hear the gospel. Jesus is alive in that church. And it was important for me because my wife didn't know Christ. Uh, so I was able to invite her to the church and began to disciple her and teach her. Uh, and eventually uh, we got involved into a small group. Uh, and being involved in a small group, she was able to uh, get taught the gospel and asked those hard, open-ended questions that she didn't know about Jesus, uh, and she eventually dedicated and gave her life to Christ right here in this church, which was amazing for our family. Um, we had two small kids. We were able to get them involved in the Summit Kids. Uh, my oldest daughter, Emery, who's three years old, is always singing about Jesus and always talks about how much fun she has in the church. It's amazing for our family, and it's going to get us in the direction where we needed to go as a family. Um, so those relationships uh, that you think are just with complete strangers, you never know what they can spiral into. You never know what they can turn into. And for us, it's turned into a relationship and an everlasting love with Jesus Christ. Uh, so much that we're going to be involved in a church plant right here in Durham with Rebuild Fellowship. Uh, I think it's going to be great for our family. We're excited about it. Uh, we're just really um, hopeful and we're excited about what Jesus is going to do in our life. Uh, we ask those, we ask Jesus uh, if he can just work in our lives and do do wonders and We'll be willing to go wherever he tells us to go and do whatever he tells us to do. So we're going to jump in and get our feet wet uh, and just share the gospel uh, with the community. Uh, so those relationships, guys, that you think that are nothing are everything. It's done everything for my family. Uh, it's been amazing. And I have nothing but the Summit Church to be thankful for. Uh, those relationships are everything, everything, guys. I'm telling you right now, don't be afraid to just jump out there and talk to strangers. You never know where it can go. We need to disciple each other. And we need to do the Lord's work together. Thank you, Summit Church, for all that you've done in my life. Again, 
I am so happy with you guys. I'm so thankful for all you've done in my life. You guys are amazing.